Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our deepest values and the people behind the positions in our public conversations. Every episode, you'll hear a conversation with someone who has some kind of public platform. Artists, academics, archbishops, entrepreneurs, politicians, and I'm realizing, having looked back at the list recently, a lot of writers, probably because writers are always the most keen to speak about themselves and their work. Our guests come from all kinds of tribes and positions, religiously, politically, And the big idea is that in an age of filter bubbles, a term coined by one of our guests, Eli Pariser, it is really easy only to listen to or read people we already agree with or who are like us in some way, who we don't find challenging or annoying or just illuminating even. And there is good evidence that this tendency, which I think we've always had, but is being really exacerbated and exaggerated, is driving division. We're losing the habit of being able to tolerate differences and disagreements. Our technology is designed actually to feed our deep in-group and out-group instincts. And it's not just our tech. The big sort is what sociologists call the ever-increasing ghettoization of society. We're just less likely to live with, work with, or even marry someone who's different from us. And of course, It would be very, very grandiose to think a podcast is going to fix this. But we hope that in some small way, listening deeply to a range of people, people who we don't usually hear, who we might not naturally come across, and listening to a conversation in which they don't start with their arguments or their positions, but with their values and their story that this might help us build the muscles we need to sustain a common life. And we hope we can deliver this all in a warm, smart, easy to digest way so it doesn't feel like homework. So here's my challenge. Don't flick down the list of episodes looking for someone you already know you like. Listen on double or 1.5 speed if you have to, to somebody you'd never normally hear and maybe whose very name or position uh, makes you feel that instinctive negative rejection that we do with people. I'm delighted to let you know that we now have transcripts available for all episodes in this series. So if you miss a reference or a book or you want to quote a guest because they say so many great things, it's much easier and you can find the link to that in the show notes. And a big, big thanks to Abby Allison on the production team who's made that happen. This series, I'm also doing a bit of verbal downloading at the end of the episode, um, reflecting on what the interview has made me think about. And this is an experiment for this season, for this series. Um, So we'd love your feedback. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, Maybe you hate it, uh, but maybe also it um, has made you think about something else. It's sat you off on a train of thought. As always, please do rate, review and share the podcast. In this episode, I spoke to Louise Perry. Louise is a writer and campaigner. She has a weekly column in the New Statesman and is press officer for the campaign group We Can't Consent to This, which documents cases in which UK women have been killed and the defendants have claimed in court that they died as a result of consensual rough sex. She has a book out next year on the case against the sexual revolution. And we spoke about motherhood, sex, consent, and the outworkings of the sexual revolution. 
And there are just a couple of things that might be good for you to know are coming. Louise is pretty critical of the surrogacy industry. And we also speak in a very non-graphic way about sexual violence uh, because of her campaigning work. And the final thing to know is that Louise's six-month-old was in a sling during the interview, so you might hear some very charming baby noises. I really hope you enjoy listening. Louise, we're going to jump right in the deep end, quite deliberately, and uh, it's okay if it feels a bit odd, um, but it certainly hopefully moves us into a slightly different gear than um, we sometimes start with, with strangers. We don't really know each other, so forgive me, this feels... uh, (laughs) you know, presumptuous and forward. But I want you to tell me what you think your deepest values might be. I frame them as sacred, just because it's a bit slightly less overused as a word, but things that you've tried to live by, values if someone offered you money to give up or compromise on, you'd feel that kind of eternal, internal ick factor. You'd feel some conflict around. What came to mind? It's interesting you mentioned money because now I was thinking this morning out for a walk about um, the thing it made me think about was this piece of writing by G.K. Chesterton, I don't know if you've read it, called I Begin With A Little Girl's Hair. So he's responding to a um, a directive from a group of senior doctors who've, um, who've noticed the fact that a lot of children living in Victorian slums have lice in their hair. And their response to this public health problem is to advise um, all children living in the slums have their hair shorn. And Chesterton is appalled by this directive. And he he describes seeing a little girl who clearly lives in one of these slums and has the most beautiful red curly hair. He describes her walking past his house and he thinks, that girl's hair is, is, is beautiful, right? She's right to think of herself as having beautiful hair. Her parents are right to feel pride in her hair. The idea of cutting her hair off is appalling because it's so beautiful. It doesn't have any market value, right? I mean, you can sell hair, I suppose, on the market, but lice-ridden hair is not going to fetch anything. So it's not worth anything in terms of money, but it's worth everything in terms of that girl's um, regard for herself and her parents' regard for, and you know, just the idea of um, something so beautiful being destroyed for no reason. And so he says, okay, if we start with the principle that we should not cut this little girl's hair off just because she's at risk of lice, then what follows? Okay, so then she has to have a clean home where she's not at risk of these diseases. So that means that she has to, that, that means that landlords who keep dirty premises must be stopped, right? And it means that she must have a mother who has the time to keep her clean and to brush her hair. So, okay, that means that a mother shouldn't spend every waking hour working a factory job. And if that's the case, then you need the father to earn enough money at his job so that he can support his wife and child without having to send them out to work. And that means you need a living wage. And that means that you need, you know, affordable affordable housing. Like, that means everything. And obviously Chesterton's Christian socialist, he, that, that's where he ends up politically. Um, and I think it's such a beautiful lesson. It's always stayed with me because it's that idea of there are things in the world which are worth nothing, but are also worth everything. And the market doesn't have any respect for them. And the market will bulldoze them if given the opportunity. But I guess where, where, where my sacred politics lies is, is in the idea of preserving those things that don't seem to be worth every, anything, but actually are. And so I guess that generally comes down to loving relationships that we have with one another and beautiful things and the sort of 
the emotional stuff of being a human, which can't uh, can't be quantified, but also makes life worth living. Yeah, it's a beautiful answer. Can you think of an example where that has driven your decisions or the kind of direction? So I've always been critical of the surrogacy industry and always felt really queasy about it. Um, initially from a radical feminist perspective. Generally, the radical feminist criticism of the industry is to say that um, it exploits uh, exploits women, exploits poor women, that it uses women in a sort of mechanistic way and turn, turns their wombs into commodities, turns children into commodities, you know, all of that sort of stuff, which is all true, which I all totally agree with. Um, but the, the response that you sometimes have from people who defend the industry is to say that um, that there are instances where that's not the case. So they'll say, well, yes, it is bad when you have these sort of baby farms in places like India or Thailand where women are paid a pittance and um, the children are whipped away from them brutally. And, you know, yes, that's bad. But what about altruistic cases or what about, you know, the sort of like organic version right like what about the the highest qualities that surrogacy isn't that fine and I still have that lingering feeling of like I don't I don't feel like it is fine but I can't quite I can't quite articulate why and then when I had my own baby who is in the sling on my chest right now and sometimes making his presence heard um that period immediately after a baby is born, it's so animalistic in a way. Like you, you're just overwhelmed with feelings of love and fear for this little for this little being who's just come into the world and is entirely your responsibility. It's the most astonishing emotional experience that you, you can kind of describe, but if you've not experienced it personally, it's quite difficult to really envisage. And I and I and I thought what surrogacy does the central thing that it does regardless of how much the woman is paid regardless of the circumstances of of, of how the industry is run is it separates the mother and baby that's what it that's what it has to do because the whole point of it is that you then remove the baby from the woman who's just given birth to it and I thought I can't and I just couldn't I just I can't bear it that you know that like and if you if you start with the principle that it is good for mothers to love their children and yes, there are cases where that won't be true. And yes, there are cases where women have postnatal depression or, you know, there are, there are always tragedies in which that ideal won't be met. But if we, if we can't agree <laughs> that women should love their children, I don't think we can agree on anything. <laughs> and so if you start with that principle that I think we can all agree on and you get rid of all the tribalism, um, which normally leads this kind of decision-making, then... You can't let the you can't let the you can't let the surrogacy industry stand. I want to just get a feel of your journey and where you've come from and your formative influences. So, tell me a bit about your childhood. Were there any big ideas in the air, political, philosophical, religious? Paint me a bit of a word picture. So, I grew up in London, middle class family. My mum is an academic. My dad's a lawyer. Um, very, very guardian reedy in the sort of Alan Rusbridger ages, age of guardian reader. There was a period where um, when I was a teenager and we used to get two copies of the Guardian delivered to our house every day because my dad would take one to work and then my mum would read one at breakfast and I'd take it to school to read on the train. So, so like about as intensely guardian reedy as you can get in that sense. Um, it was funny, I was listening to your interview with Miriam Cates because I know Miriam slightly, I was listening to it this morning. 
Um, and she mentioned listening to Radio 4, aged 11. And I laughed because I also listened to Radio 4 when I was 11. I remember, in fact, talking to my RS teacher about listening to The Moral Maze in year eight. So I would have been like 12. And she was amazed that a 12-year-old listened to The Moral Maze, which was a weird thing to do in retrospect. Um, so, yeah, I guess sort of... I guess the intellectual journey that I've gone on is that I, I've, I've strayed a bit from the kind of typical views of people of my background and my class. Sometimes people can describe me as a conservative. I don't think that's quite right. I, I actually feel as if I'm still very much like within the old traditions of Guardian Reader, you know, um, and I'm a member of the Labour Party and uh, I've never voted Tory in my life. Um, but I think in a sense, a lot of um, the left have moved away from me. And so I've ended up in this slightly odd no man's land politically, mm. um, which is fortunately an interesting place to be yeah. in terms of writing material and so on. But um, sometimes a slightly lonely place to be as well. Were you writing as a teenager? Like when did using your voice in this particular way in the written form kind of crystallise as something that you could do for a living? Um, I did a bit in writing for sort of the university newspaper and things like that. Um, but I actually kept it a deadly secret that I wanted to be, a, that I aspired to be a writer professionally for ages because I just thought it was such a ridiculous thing to aspire to. I didn't think it was practical. Um, I kind of vaguely thought oh, maybe in the future I might do another career and then sort of like arrive at writing in a retirement kind of capacity. But I thought the idea that I would earn a living writing just seems so stupid I wouldn't even I wouldn't share it with with anyone really um so I did do bits and pieces I was actually someone at um the editor a fellow student who was the editor of the newspaper that I was writing for at SOAS she was actually a person who said to me you should think of doing this for a living I don't think anyone had ever said that to me before and it did stick with me I was really I've forgotten her name but yeah. <laughs> it was it was really nice of her to say so after university I worked at um a rape crisis center and it wasn't until I left that job and I was kind of in the lurch and I hadn't yet had another job lined up and was sort of doing bits and pieces of other paid work that I thought maybe I should give this a go. So I tried writing some stuff on spec and sent it to people and the vast majority didn't get back to me. Um, but I did, I got, you know, I got my first paid gig and then I got my next paid gig and then it sort of snowballed from there. And then amazingly, I was offered the New Statesman contract like two years or 18 months or something after that. Yeah. And so you have a weekly column and you also write pieces elsewhere and it's sort of wonderfully, um, it, it kind of speaks to this sense of politi political homelessness that you write for The Critic and for Unheard and, and The New Statesman. Yeah. But yes. I'd love to hear what you think the role of a columnist is now. I've spoken to a few on the podcast and I'm so intrigued because when we talk about the public conversations, in some ways... The, the columnist is like the high priest and priestess of the public conversations. They listen to the kind of roiling burbling and then try and condense it into, you know, this is my perspective on this idea of the moment. I'm going to take the temperature of what's going on and I'm going to put an argument forth. It yes. it feels to me high pressure um, 
and ethically very interesting because of the role that you have in other people slightly outsourcing their opinions. How do you frame it? Is it a vocation? Is it just a job? Where does it sit? So interesting that you, you um, use the word priest in relation to this, because I've always thought, although I've never written this, that um, the opinion column is basically a sermon. It has the structure of a sermon because you start, there's some like, you know, like snazzy opening, right? Depending on your... Give it a nice look. Flavor of, of vicar, right? And then you have... Then, but then the, the, in place of the gospels, you have some news event as your peg. And then you expound from there and it's like a nice little, and it's weekly and it's a little sort of like rounded off um, kind of like morsel of, of, of intellectual wisdom or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and in some ways it, it, it fills that, it kind of fills that void in a way. And given that so few of us go to church now, it kind of, <laughs> it, it provides that, that guidance um, in terms of the news events. It's something I feel quite mixed about in a way, because I didn't really go into this intending to be an opinion writer. Um, what I wrote initially was um, reviews. I mean, I still write a lot of reviews. I've always been an opinionated person, as my mum will tell me. I was one of those little toddlers who got bored really, really quickly and would um, um, got frustrated I couldn't do things and was like, you know, really vocal and whatever. And now I myself have a baby who is like this. And my, and my mother looks The schadenfreude. Yeah, <laughs> I really hate that way that the news media tends towards like churning through and then forgetting events that you have that terror particularly when something tragic happens you have something awful happening in the news and then you have like the round of opinions and then you have the round of counter opinions and then it's and then it's gone right and then like a week later it's sort of it's sort of being forgotten um and everyone moves on and everyone just slots into their like predictable um tribal groups I always find that quite depressing I don't like that so I do so I you know I am on Twitter and I absorb I absorb all of the, the news through Twitter as so many people do because it is the it is the place to go with what you're interested in is news and opinions. But I also don't like it and I also try and use it sparingly because I think it has a tendency to really flatten um, flatten thinking and encourage the worst in us. Um, so what I try and do as far as possible in the weekly column is to, to sort of to resist that pull towards being really... Um, angrily polemical and to, um, to to try and like try and chew on things a bit more slowly mm. <laughs> but there are pressures right it the, uh, the 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 sort of dreaded phrase is about I guess that piece did very well which means lots of people felt strongly about it and yes. shared it and so nuance yes. is s- sort of an Achilles heel in a column do you do you have conversations with your editors about it conversations with yourself about it where like I actually don't feel that str- as strongly as I've put it on the page but for clarity I have to push it a bit mm. I haven't I haven't had this at the news station but definitely there's that that thing where you try and give a sort of softly softly opinion and then and then the headline doesn't represent that at all <laughs> because that's not what gets clicked um yes I mean I think that there are there is obviously that that segment of the industry um, it's incredibly capitalist industry, right? Like, I, I obviously, I, I often have criticisms to level at capitalism and the, and, and the effect it has on all of us in terms of values and whatever. But I'm obviously doing that from within an industry that is ruthlessly capitalist and has an incredible amount of inequality in terms of 
um, earnings of people in the industry. You know, you've got a vast, you've got a sort of Pareto principle where you've got loads and loads of people, particularly in the internet era, earning almost nothing. And then you have the incredibly highly paid columnists at some outlets and, you know, and it is all about the columnist as brand. So I'm, I'm, I'm aware of that. And there is obviously a, a route you can go down in that, that, that ends up making you into a sort of 2D parody of yourself. And I think the longer you do it, the more that becomes a risk potentially because you're playing to your audience. I mean, I know what's going to get clicks and I know the sort of tweets that go viral. Um, and I deliberately don't do them or, or do them very sparingly and selectively and only at times when I feel like it's appropriate. Um, and I hope that it's this funny thing when you write for a print magazine that you, you might not get a lot of response online and you might not get a huge number of letters, but there are people who read you every week. And I know I've like, I've met neighbors in the street who'll say, Oh, I read you every week and so on, which is really such a nice thing to hear. And it gives me the encouragement to not go for those clip-based pieces because actually there is value in being the the old reliable every week, offering something a little bit more thoughtful. Um, and that you know that that exists as a niche within the industry. It's just that there is in competition with the other niches as well. Yeah. And you, what is it, Rape Crisis Center? And you are slash still up were slash still are, I'm not sure, a spokesperson for a group about sexual violence. You know, the classic thing about journalism is a, a bit of distance or objectivity. I think that's less necessary with comment and opinion. But do you ever feel a tension yeah. between those two roles? Um, I mean, I'd be lying if I said I didn't sometimes feel reluctant to criticise MPs who I need on side for campaigning reasons. That's, yeah, that's absolutely that's helpfully true. honest. Yeah, <laughs> yeah because... Or, 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 or whoever other figures that you know are friends with other figures or whatever, like you don't want to, I mean, I, I generally try not to slag people off in print anyway. Um, but um, yes, occasionally that comes up and I sort of reason that I'm not doing it. I'm not like a paid lobbyist for oil or anything. Like I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm advancing. Trying to stop, um, speak for women who've been murdered. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I'm, I'm doing it for a good reason. Um, but yeah, there is sometimes that slight, that slight tension or sometimes the feeling I've had that, um, that I shouldn't write about anything too controversial because I don't want to impact negatively on the campaign. Although actually I've not had that happen, surprisingly enough. And if anything, what's happened more often is I've had people who like my writing and who work in government or whatever contact me and say that they are supportive of the campaign. You know, if anything, the two seem to have been um, mutually beneficial so far. Um, and I do often, often return to the, some of the themes that touch on the campaign in my, I should say for listeners who don't know, I'm just assuming, but um, the campaign that we run is called We Can't Consent to This. We um, document cases where women have been killed and their killers have claimed they died as a result of a sex game gone wrong. We've been seeing that kind of defence tactic used more and more, more and more often in the courts um, in the last decade or so and unfortunately it quite often works in terms of getting defendants off with a lighter sentence or avoiding a murder conviction or whatever it might be um we'll come back to that and I, I want to talk about kind of consent as the key sexual ethic of the moment but I want to just stay on um on motherhood a, a moment now we've mentioned it because you I'm interested you're one of the few people I've come across who write and think deeply about motherhood and fertility and the kind of politics of that. You started writing about fertility and maternity and um, motherhood 
long before you had your own baby. I, I gather it was your thesis topic. And what, yes. what drew you to that subject before it had kind of personal resonance for you? I've been interested in feminism for a long time. And I part of the reason I chose it as a, I, I mean, I did it as a thesis topic for both my undergraduate and my um, master's thesis is because um, no one else was really talking about it. It was like a massive gap in the, in the um, academic market because there was just almost no interest. I remember writing about, I, I did my undergraduate thesis on um, wet nursing historically. And um, uh, I remember in a study group that we had um, describing my, my research topic and one of the other students who was doing something incredibly like esoteric on something to do with like a theatre group in Palestine or something, described my topic as niche. I was like, I mean, yeah, it is niche in the sense that like all of our research topics are niche. That's kind of the point. You find a niche, it's not yet been filled. Um, but also it's like we're talking about not wet nursing necessarily, but everything to do with motherhood. We're talking about something that affects literally everybody because we were all babies once and a little under half of us will be mothers at some point. And, uh, and yet it's sort of treated with this like funny, um, yeah, niche interest which I don't think it is at all so I've always found it interesting for that point partly just the fact that it's so it feels like the elephant in the room particularly in feminism which is has always had a very vexed relationship with motherhood yeah my children are five and seven and I Mm. remember on maternity leave being like why are there no why are there no books why is there no why does this not show up in all the novels I love this powerful Mm. mystical life-changing experience is like seems to be intentionally excised from the great body of art about the human Mm. experience and Mm. all the books are like how-to books there's very few women reflecting on the kind of philosophical and existential elements of it I Mm -hmm. feel like that's changed even in the last five or ten years do you Mm -hmm. you see it kind of becoming more visible Yes, although my only complaint on that, there have been some lots more books on motherhood and I really welcome it. My only complaint is it still so often gets framed as a struggle and a burden, which obviously it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, that is obviously one component yeah. of it. Um, but it, it, it's, I think the joys of it are quite rarely acknowledged. I guess because often writers feel as though they're sort of shadow boxing with this old enemy of the angel in the home. And this idea that we're all supposed to be sort of these like joyous mess of God. Yeah, but I don't feel like that's been the dominant narrative for a very long time. That's certainly not what I was grew up with. This idea that, you know, it was always assumed that that women would have careers and would, you know, if anything, it's it's motherhood that's sort of the dirty secret now in a sense. And that once you encounter it, you think, oh gosh, this changes everything. Yeah. It's a very this is well, this is very niche, but my husband's a philosopher and it's, the metaphysics of pregnancy are very hot in philosophy right now and very contested for obvious reasons like yeah. what you decide yeah. is happening metaphysically in pregnancy has all kinds of political implications um yes but uh that's it absolutely does because the pregnant woman is 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 not one person right she is two people in a sense well that it does, someone- that's what's contested well, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's basically impossible to square with individualism. So as soon as motherhood collides with individualism, and, it, and I, I think, and I write about this in my book, that in some senses what's happened is that feminists correctly recognise the fact that individualism and motherhood are at odds with one another. And they said, right, down with motherhood then. And I say, no, down with individualism. <laughs> yeah. Um, you are living it right now. Uh, 
for the last six months. What has, have some of your assumptions been changed? What's, what surprised you, I guess? I, I want to be with my baby more than I thought I would and more than I was told I would generally, not told specifically by, by the people around me, but sort of told by the culture. I had no idea how insane it was to think of putting a very small baby in daycare. And the fact that there are so many women who are forced to do that, particularly in America where they don't have maternity leave. Um, I, it never occurred to me before that that was how much of a wrench that is for women as well as for babies and how different it is being a mother from being a father. I had a friend actually recently who, who we were talking about, she's on the fence about whether or not she wants to be, she wants to have children. And she's reflecting and she says, I definitely want to be a father, but I don't know if I want to be a mother. And I thought that was such a, <laughs> such a beautiful way of framing it because it, yeah, it's totally different. It's totally different. Um, and motherhood just, there's, there's an asymmetry to it that you just cannot surmount, right? You can try and surmount it by things like formula and daycare and, you know, they're, they're like, there are strategies that can, you can kind of use, but you're, 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 you're always sort of kidding yourself. Like it, it is just, it is a totally different experience for the woman. Um, and always will be. So tell me about this thread that you're pulling on around the sexual revolution and the kind of sexual culture that we're in now and what it means for women. What made you want to write the book that you're writing? I mean, largely because no one's written it and it feels sort of crazy that no one's written it. No one, I mean, well, <clears throat> there have obviously been uh, lots of really, really good radical feminist books written about the problems with um, sex positive feminism and with sexual libertarianism in general. Can you just define those terms, which some people will be very familiar with, but sex positive or sex positive feminism, just define it for me. So sex positive feminism uh, is a strain of feminism that emerged in about the 80s, 90s. And it basically um, is a reaction against both um, conservative and religious moralizing on sex and also on um some feminist traditions which have been very negative particularly about heterosexuality and what sex positive feminism does is it says actually there's nothing inherently bad or shameful or whatever about sex and as long as everyone is consenting and has the capacity to consent then our default state should sort of be taking a positive attitude towards it and we should regard all of the like the beautiful complexity of of human sexuality we should sort of celebrate uh, engage with in an open-minded way yeah what what it often translates to in practical terms is a i would say naive view of things like the sex industry and of um sadomasochism and certain areas of sexual life which are much more grim <laughs> and which I don't think we should regard positively. I mean, I sort of regard it as being, I understand the sentiment behind it in terms of reacting against something that has often been very um, unpleasant, but it's sort of like talk, describing itself as food positive or something. It's like, yes, <laughs> you know, food is great. We all love food, but that doesn't make anorexia a good thing. That doesn't make McDonald's a good thing. That's, you know, like it's, it's, it's this absolutely huge area of human experience, which is very complex and very political. And um, I don't think that 
that positivity is, is should be our default state. I think cri- being critical should be our default state. So tell me, what do you think the legacy is for women of the sexual revolution? I guess historically, but particularly right now. I think it's very mixed. And the thing that I'm the thing that I really want to argue against in this book is the kind of um, the progressive view of the last hundred years in terms of sexual culture. The idea that we've seen this like steady upward march towards everything being much better for everyone. And it sounds like I'm straw manning, but like, it's not very far from the truth. This idea that people in the past were just wrong and they were wrong because they were bad or they were stupid or, you know, and that in some time around 1964, we all sort of woke up and decided that actually we'd been really silly and that there are still some people who are catching up. And I just, I, I, I used to totally buy into that into that narrative of history. I mean, not just related to sexual revolution, but related to all sorts of things. This idea that we are, as as modern people, we are uniquely insightful. When you pause to think about it, it's actually nonsense, but it's a very prevalent view. The And the feminist iteration of it as well, which I think is particularly flimsy, is sort of like the great woman view of history almost. This idea that we that some feminists arrived who were blessed with particular insight and they sort of persuaded everyone. And this is where we got to. I think that there obviously have been extremely um, important influential individuals who've had uh, a role in directing all of these political movements. But I think, as you say, I'm a Marxist conservative in that I think it all comes down to material in the end. And what's changed for women in the last hundred years is yes, the arrival of the feminist movement and all the important texts of surrounding it and so on but it's also things like washing machines it's things like tampons it's things like um the fact that we now have an economy which is much less based on human physical strength which will obviously be be advantageous for men because they're much stronger than women are it's because we have um the means of limiting childbearing all of this that's what's changed for women really and then the politics comes after and i think the thing for the sexual revolution is the pill and then the decriminalisation of abortion, which came subsequently. And I don't think that we've really reckoned as a culture with what the pill did, because it's only been 60 years, a couple of generations. And actually its effect has been startling. That it's, it's just, I've, I've read it described as being a technology shock. Hmm. This thing that arrives in the world and suddenly, you know, because a young woman who appears fertile but actually isn't, has her fertility suspended, is, a, is in a sense a totally different biological creature <laughs> from a woman who, who is fertile. And I think that some of the effects of that have been really good and I think some of the effects of it have been bad. And I don't think that we've spoken enough about the bad things. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to do now because I think that it's wrong to frame the consequences of the pill and everything that came with it as being unambiguously good for women. I think that there are some elements of it that were good for women, but I think actually it's mostly that the key winners of all of this have been a subset of men. Which subset? And then what are the ways that it's been bad for women? So I think that the group of men who've done really well out of the sexual revolution are basically the Hugh Hefners of the world, right? The, the men who are really interested in having a lot of casual sex and are attractive enough to get it and now don't have to deal with consequences of it in any way and can and can basically regard sex as being a uh, a meaningless social interaction a leisure pursuit my um, yeah my friend um 
Aaron Sabarian, who's an American writer, he coined this term sexual disenchantment to describe what's um, the way in which our um, our view of sex has changed in the post-sexual revolution era. He takes it from the um, Max Weber's view of disenchantment of the natural world, where when the um, one consequence of the Enlightenment is that we used to understand the natural world as being sort of governed by supernatural forces. And then as we came to understand it in a mechanistic way, we let go of that and we no longer understood it as being magical or, or like imbued with any kind of any kind of spirit. And I think that's what we've done with sex as well, in that we used to understand it for good and ill as being a literally a sacred thing and also sacred in a more abstract way, in that it was a the means of creating new life. And the ideal the ideal form of sexual interaction was creating new life within a loving partnership. And obviously that didn't always happen. Obviously there have always been people who have not regarded sex in that way. There've always been, um, you know, the worst possible examples of, of, um, of um, sexual misbehavior. But when we discarded that and we tried to understand sex in a new way as being something devoid of any kind of particular, particular moral status, um, I think that we lost a lot and I think the women particularly lost a lot because actually it doesn't serve women's interest to pretend that female sexuality is the same as male sexuality. It's different in some really important ways. And one of the ways in which it's different is that women find it much, much harder to detach sex from emotion. And trying to do that results in all kinds of harms. Um, it's kind of like what we were talking about at the beginning of at the very beginning of our conversation about, um, you know, starting with certain, starting with starting with certain fundamentals and then going from there. And I think that if we start, for instance, with the fundamental view that um, no one, no one actually believes sexual disenchantment, like in practice, no one actually regards sex as being just like anything else. Even the people who who, who say most strongly that they do, everyone sees that it has a special status, but it's it's a special status that's quite difficult to articulate. And it's quite intangible. And because of that, it's quite, it's almost embarrassing to talk about, isn't it, to describe it as being special or sacred or whatever. It sounds kind of namby-pamby, but everyone behaves as if it is like that. And, and yet simultaneously tries to sort of reason that away. The example I use sometimes is about Me Too. I think that what happened with Me Too, it was an intense and really just sort of distressed response to some of the fallout from the sexual revolution that hadn't, that really wasn't working for women. The stories that you had coming out of Me Too were absolutely sincere in women describing their intense um, unhappiness in relation to sexual culture. But it didn't go far enough in that it didn't actually reflect on whether the, the, the reasoning from most proponents of Me Too was that the sexual revolution was unfinished in some way, rather than thinking that actually there had been premises right from the beginning that were false. And crucially, this idea of sex as being like, if we suck out all the meaning from sex and if we stop regarding it in this kind of old fashioned way, then everything will come right. And actually, that's not true. And you see this, for instance, with like Harvey Weinstein and his um, his abuse of his subordinates. Um, if sexual disenchantment were, were true and if it were actually the case that sex is no more like innately imbued with meaning than any other kind of social interaction, then a lot of what Harvey Weinstein did wouldn't have been wrong 
I mean, he did he did commit crimes, but a lot of what he did wasn't criminal per se, and was actually much more to do with quite coercion. subtle coercion. Yeah, and you know, and a lot of what was going on in Hollywood is that you had a lot of young actresses who were very beautiful and were desperate to get ahead in the industry. And one way in which you could get ahead in the industry with the likes of Weinstein was by offering sexual favours, that horrible phrase. And if they had been doing any other type of, you know, advancement within their career, like doing overtime or or um, um, offering to make coffee for their employer or any of these things that people do routinely, yes, they wouldn't be like strictly within their job description, but no one would think that it was abuse. No one would think that it was fundamentally wrong. But with sex, we know, we know that it's wrong. We feel that it's wrong. And yet if, if you if you try and sort of reason that away, then that becomes impossible to articulate. And all that you've got left is talk of consent. And, and yeah, sorry, go on. unpack that for me, because I was reading a little bit about the campaign, the we can't consent to this, and mm. the kind of pushback from very porn positive, sex positive kind of sexual libertarian groups are... Um, Around some of this is often is often this sense of concern within anything that involves two consenting adults is just prudishness or yeah. kink shaming is a new phrase I learned reading about you and old me kink shaming <laughs> um, yes. you know uh, moralistic repressed all of these things um, yeah. because basically anything within two consenting adults goes but yes. and there are those I gather that would say if some you know. To, to the point of really serious bodily harm, if it's been consented to, yeah. then yeah. ethically, that's fine. How widespread do you think this is as a position or is it just sort of part of the white noise that is showing up in unexpected places? Um, I think that the people who push it hardest are a vocal minority. We've certainly found in the campaign that we've had an overwhelmingly positive response, um, including from just about, I think just about every newspaper um, in this country has, has given us positive coverage across the political spectrum. So I think that in, in terms of, you know, the, the majority opinion is definitely on our side. Um, having said this, I mean, the problem that we're basically seeing that's, that's been resulting in all of these um, um, men who've killed women relying on this kind of rough sex defence is that the cultural attitude towards this kind of violence and sex has changed and it means that it is now it, when these when defendants present these kind of narratives in court or to police or whoever they are more often than not being believed because it seems plausible to people and it's partly to do with well it has a lot to do with porn the fact that you now have um really violent porn on the front pages of some of the biggest porn platforms in the world being presented as being a perfectly normal, just sort of another variety of, of um, sexual practice and so on. Um, so, I mean, in, in a sense, what our campaign has done is that there's always been this ongoing debate about the effect that porn has on people's, on sexual culture and on people's actual practices. And it's been a very difficult one to resolve because you can't really do a, a, a double blind trial in any way. In a sense, what our campaign has done is it's shown that actually there is an effect and it's a bad effect um, because you are seeing this play out outside of, outside of the bedroom. I mean, the thing that I would say to the people who um, say this is fine if there's consent, I mean, well, several things to say, but one of them being that 
the just to be clear, I don't got. think anyone would argue. What very few people argue killing someone is fine if there's consent, but they would say almost yes, any practice if there's consent. Yeah, yeah. There's a very small minority who would say that you can kill someone with consent, but they're they are they are very unusual. Um, what most people say is that um, something like strangulation, which is the cause of death in about I think two thirds of the cases that we found, and it has become a very a surprisingly mainstream sexual practice. People would say, "Oh, whatever, it's fine." You know, if if if, if everyone consents, then no problem. Um, to which I say, "Okay, but what do you do when you have?" men it's always been men we've not found a single case of a woman using this defense tactic who um kill their partner and they say that it was a sex game gone wrong and there are no witnesses and the victim is dead and that you know that there's no way of um assessing whether or not that was true like how do you how how, how do you deal with that because if you if you, if you want to tell me that it's fine as long as everyone's consenting and accidents happen and you know then we very quickly will end up in a situation where no man who strangles his girlfriend or wife to death is ever convicted of murder ever again because they can so easily claim that actually it was just a sex game gone wrong and no one can say otherwise so there is there's a really serious practical issue that you get to if you do start saying that people can consent to serious violence um and the other issue of course is to do with the fact that we do not make choices in a vacuum and this is this is being very well understood by uh, behavioural scientists. We've got now. Um, I can't remember when Nudge was published. It must be twenty years ago or something, right? This is this. Um, the government fully understands the fact that people's choices can be influenced quite subtly. The reason that you have um, chocolate bars next to the checkout tills when you go to the supermarket is because the supermarket knows <laughs> that you're more likely to grab it if it's if it's next to you while you're queuing. Um, we are all enmeshed with one another, right? And that means that the choices that we make are influenced by the choices that are presented to us and the choices that have been made by people around us. And so it's not it's not good enough to say that because someone's choosing something, that means that it's good for them or good for anybody else. Mm-hmm. And um, that's the kind of individualist message but it doesn't work. It falls apart really, really quickly. And I think that our campaign is kind of charting some of the, um, some of the consequences of that. It's so, it goes so deep, right? The, Mm. I, 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 you know, I'm a Christian, I'm very formed by a a Christian worldview, which I think naturally leans more communitarian, you know, Mm. uh, a sense of persons, not individuals. But still I am formed by a culture whereby judging someone else's choice or mm. saying there might be moral implications for me because of your free choice in your sex life mm. feels so uncomfortable and deeply mm. anathema. Mm. And no one, you know, then people have the spectrum of, you know, deeply authoritarian societies and mor- morally repressive societies. <laughs> we, all, we all watch, um, oh, what's the thing with the red hoods? <laughs> You know, hand my step. You know, yeah. it feels like they perceive pure individual freedom on one hand versus everyone giving up their right to their conscience or whatever it is on the other. The idea there yeah. might be some space in the middle is really difficult. How do you make that case? What what actually helps you engage across those differences and and meet people across those divides in ways that feel more productive and less adversarial? If you have found things that help, I mean. I start by saying that it's not the case that we do in practice in law and also more generally 
popular discussion, we don't, we're not actually anything goes. Like there are actually a lot of things that are either um, criminalised or, you know, we the, the law has set a boundary and said that certain things are, um, certain sexual practices are not to be condoned. Even when they don't have an obvious victim, even when, um, you know, bestiality, for instance, is an example of something that is criminalised, even though it, it, like the consent model is actually quite... It's actually quite, I don't want to go into details, but, you know, like yeah. we have set a boundary. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've already decided that there are some things that actually we don't permit it. The question is where we set that boundary. Every society sets a boundary. What's difficult is deciding on where to set it. And absolutely, there are authoritarian governments that have set it far, far, far um, too, too repressively. Yeah, but we do say that, you know, <laughs> sexual repression is not an evil. Sexual repression is necessary. Everybody has to repress their sexual urges in some manner, right? If you if you fancy someone and they don't fancy you back, you have to you have to repress that. The law tells you that you have to. The question is just how much repression we demand of people. One of the very common responses that we get to the campaign and just generally to some of the discussions on um, BDSM and also prostitution and so on is people who say, "But what about women who?" what about women who consent to being subjected to this? You know, what about women who ask to be strangled and so on? And I find it quite helpful often to um, reply by saying, that's fine, but what about the man who's doing it to her? Is there not something a bit suspect about a man who is aroused by being violent towards his partner? Is this really something, even if it's in play, you know, even if it's basically what's been advocated here is like, play acting at domestic violence even if you're just play acting at domestic violence isn't there something a bit concerning <laughs> about a man who enjoys that it doesn't that isn't that a red flag you know and I think but um, basically what you get down to in the end and I wish someone would do uh, some philosophical study on this one day because I'm I'm not equipped to is that I'm a virtue ethicist right is basically what it comes down to and I and I just think I think it is not virtuous to want to be violent towards your partner. I think it's something that we shouldn't encourage. Louise Perry, thank you so much for speaking to me on The Sacred. Thank you very much. Well, Louise has really uh, underlined my sense that there are really quite large numbers of people in the UK who, who do feel politically homeless. And my sense that this left-right binary is if not useless, then certainly breaking down. But we haven't found language that really helps us um, uh, find alternatives to broaden the scale or complexify some of those categories. I think Louise would call herself a post-liberal. But yeah, anyone who's doing interesting work on what the new tribes or positions are in, uh, in politics in the UK, I'd love to hear about that. I mean, it's, it, it does tend to be that the people I've spoken to, at least, are those who came from a more specifically or more self-consciously progressive or left-wing household. I love that Louise had a was from a two copies of the Guardian household. Um, and someone like Suzanne Moore would also be in that group. I spoke to Grace Olmsted, who um, is an American writer who's very much been a conservative and a Republican, and now doesn't feel like she can find her home on the right of the party either. Um, I don't think it's a clustering in the centre, actually, but I'm interested in what is going on there. 
I really enjoyed hearing her sacred value that some things cannot and should not be given a market value. And it reminds me of Michael Sandel, who did the Theos lecture um, a little while ago. His prior book, prior to his book on meritocracy, is about um, what money can't buy, what the limits of the markets are. And we really do seem to have lost a language for talking about value that is not monetary. Um, The alternative that we use is sentimental value. And that feels very patronizing. (laughs) Um, I think there's something deeper and fiercer about these things that we want to avoid being um, subject to those kind of market equations. But the sacred is actually one way that we can talk about those things. Um, But yeah, I feel the loss of it. I feel the difficulty of creating almost fences or um, protection against market value encroaching for things that uh, we hold very, very deep and very, very dear. I really like Louise's point about uh, an opinion column basically being a secularized sermon minus the sacred text. These opinion columns, I like sermons within a monetized context, um, which creates its own sort of pressures, as Michael Sandel, I'm sure, would say. And obviously the major drawback uh, that Louise mentioned is that novelty is so high value in this information age that if you're a columnist or indeed anyone trying to make your living through ideas you need to be constantly saying things that are new that have a newsy hook is how they used to talk about it in the BBC um and uh that really is it really is a problem actually it uh I've been reading Thomas More this week who was an early modern thinker he wrote Utopia he was later a Catholic martyr for standing up to Henry VIII um And he has this lovely quote in this very kind of stark medieval Christianity book called The Four Last Things, in which he's saying we need to meditate on the four last things, which are death, pain, doom, and joy. Uh, These uh, very kind of hard-edged things. Um, But he has this lovely quote that we know many things we can't remember. Basically, there's a big, big difference between sucking in knowledge, reasoning things once, hearing someone once, having a kind of fleeting thought about something and remembering them. And that when it comes to the soul, it's only the things that we remember that really count. And by remember, he means sort of consciously, intentionally repeating um, that thing. So for him, it's meditating on, you know, death and judgment and pain and joy. But I'm increasingly having this sense that I and many of us are just saturated by too much information and too many facts. And I almost want to sit down uh, in 2022 and be like, right, what are the key things in my life? What are the ideas or the stories or the relationships that I want to form me? And how do I just get over my need for novelty and keep going back? And of course, that's what the best kind of actual sermons do. Uh, Most clergy friends joke to me they've only got two sermons or three sermons. And we go to church to hear the same things spoken about again and again, week on week, in a way that we hope can form us. Um, Yeah, and that's hard for opinion columnists to do. Um, So I like opinion columns, but I've decided I like sermons more. That's my conclusion. It was really depressing to talk about uh, the consent model of sex. And obviously, Louise is only one perspective on that. I'm sure a different guest would... um, be more positive about sex positivity and we're hoping to have a guest on in the next series uh, to talk about that and I look forward to hearing from them but certainly that phrase sexual disenchantment is really powerful as a summarizing of what has happened 
with sex. Um, I think I didn't agree with Louise, specifically when she said uh, positivity shouldn't be the default state, that critique should be our default state. I don't think that's necessarily helpful. I think it's temperamental, but particularly in the kind of world of ideas where many of these people that we speak to on the sacred who have a public voice or public platform function, being a critic, critiquing other people's views, saying, no, that doesn't sound right, being suspicious, being sceptical has very high value. Um, But I'm increasingly interested in those who are encouragers and affirmers and who are happy to name what's good and want to actually positively build something. It's really clear in the world that we're in that cheerleaders have a much lower social status than critics, that those who can see the flaw or the problem in someone else's project or argument. Social capital accrues to them. It's one of the ways that we signal intelligence. And it's good. You know, university education gives you this kind of mind. I don't want us to be credulous or gullible. But yeah, I could tell by my reaction to that line that I do not believe that critique should be our default state. I want to seek out and pay attention to what's good in the world, what is pure and praiseworthy and beautiful and fun, um, as well as the things that need correcting. And the final thing that really stuck with me was the moment when Louise talks about her female friend who doesn't know she wants to be a mother but does want to be a father. It's such a pithy summation um, of some of the tensions in that. That's all from me. Please do get in touch if anything that Louise said or any of my thoughts uh, struck a chord or set up a train of thought or you want to react to uh, with the other side of the argument. I'd be really interested to hear that. Speak to you soon. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred. Remember, sharing is caring, as my four-year-old says. So please do send this or another episode to a friend. Rate us on Apple Podcasts or my personal favourite, leave us a review. I really get a thrill when I see a new one pop up. Huge thanks to Abby Allison for research and production support and Emily Down for our visual identity. We are edited by Drew Hawley and our music is composed and arranged by Luke Stanley with vocals by Lizzie Harvey. The Sacred is a project of the think tank Theos and you can find out more about our work at theosthinktank.co.uk.